their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you would ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maud. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. You're listening to Bonnie and Maud. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. We are coming to you with a sort of special episode today. We are part of, uh, for us at least, our first ever pod crawl. Uh, Xenia, what's a pod crawl? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just reveling in how you're saying it. Pod crawl. Pod crawl. <laughs> <laughs> um, a pod crawl, uh, it allows us to share um, other interesting podcast with our listeners and vice versa. This time around, we're working with our friends at Read It and Weep and Proudly Resents. And we're going to be doing a series of episodes all centered on 90s Batman sequels. Yes. So this is the first. um, And a week from today, today being the day that this episode is released, um, June 12th, we have... Read it and weep, discussing exactly. Batman Forever. And then June 19th, uh, Proudly Resents will be tackling Batman and Robin, a.k.a. the one where George Clooney has nipples on his bat suit. <laughs> um, which means, of course, today we are discussing Batman Returns. Ooh. Ooh. And we have a wonderful guest with us. You may remember him from the In the Cut episode of our show. Welcome back, David Archer. Hi, I'm happy to be here. We are happy to have you, not just because it is wonderful to see your face and hear you uh, talk on anything pop culture, um, but because you are a preeminent Catwoman scholar. Yes. (laughs) Somehow it actually worked out that this is my wheelhouse. It is. Um, So we're very happy to have you back. Um, I wanted to mention, too, uh, as we're getting into this pod crawl, that 2014 marks the 75th anniversary of Batman in general. The comic series debuted in 1940. Batman made his first appearance in Detective Comics number 28 in 1939. Wow. How many uh, Catwoman comics have you read? Oh, um, too many. Okay. Too, like, I can't tell you. <laughs> you don't look like a fanboy, but... <laughs> it's her. It's her. It's her. Because, um, you know, I grew up with um, the 60s series in syndication all the time, so that was always playing. And um, Batman, the animated series, was just like the right moment in my childhood. Um, if I'm reading a comic, it's a Batman comic, and it had better have Catwoman in it. <laughs> what is it for you, David, about Catwoman that uh, endears her to you so? I mean, I've always responded well to... Um, dynamic women, women with kind of a bad streak. I watched a lot of The Young and the Restless with my mother when I was a kid, and there is nobody cooler than Sheila Carter um, <laughs> taking people hostage and you know just doing it for herself. But yeah, it was just a kind of primal response, and we'll get more into this soon, um, but there's something really terrific about how this character has evolved and survived and She's a really strangely resilient creation because she has maybe changed more than a lot of the other rogues in the Batman mythos. Mythos, And for somebody as iconic as she is, there have been a lot of changes and iterations. So she's, she's fun 
to look deeper at. She's so fun. I mean, Batman Returns, uh, this was my first time seeing it as... Which you, is nuts. You're you, nuts. You may be shocked to find out. The reason behind that is because when I was a kid, we were watching, I was watching it with my family, and I distinctly remember the part where Selena comes back af to her apartment after having been tossed out the window by Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, and she miraculously survives. Um, so she comes back to her girly apartment and promptly tears it to shreds. Um, and she takes all of her stuffed animals, which are like an emblem of her prior girliness and naivete, and stuffs them down the uh, incinerator, down garbage the garbage disposal. disposal. And I was a child. I love stuffed animals. I was not having this. This was like too violent for me. And so I, I, I probably ran out of the room, but I remember also her doing the uh, tic-tac-toe on the on the would-be rapist's face so i must have stuck around for like five more minutes but after that happened i was like nope i'm mm -hmm. gone so yeah i don't so, know i was what scared me as a child i now find totally empowering so that's interesting mm -hmm. <laughs> so pretty much as soon as she says i'm catwoman hear me roar you're like i'm out i know it, it yeah i don't know i don't know but uh i I really loved watching this, and I, I think I loved it because this story, the story of Batman Returns, does not really focus on Batman at all. He's kind of the sideshow to the three awesome villains. The Penguin is also here, uh, played by Danny DeVito, and then there's Shrek, and then there's Catwoman, mm -hmm. right? So Batman's sort of like... He's sort of blah. He kind of has nothing to oh, do in this movie. He's so boring in this. I, I don't know. I actually like Michael Keaton in general. There have been a lot of films that I've enjoyed with him, but every time you see him, his responses to things, he just sort of has his mouth ajar and like is staring at people. The first time we see him is he's sitting in a dark room in like a lazy boy or something, and he's just like clearly waiting for the bat symbol to go up. And then as soon as it does, he, like, can't wait to get out of the house. But even then, just, like, everything about him is very slow and sluggish. And he's not snappy or cool. He's, like, the nerdiest character in this film. I feel like I would love a nerdy Batman. <laughs> but he just doesn't have enough to do. I mean, at the end, his ultimate, like, way to defeat the bad guy is basically by pushing a button that scrambles a signal more or less and then so you have the villains doing all of the heavy lifting and being super wonderful to watch on screen even they don't have that many interesting lines though i as much as i loved the scenery the costumes the acting was good but like no one had snappy lines i kept waiting for something <laughs> oh i mean what interesting what else do you want um Life's a bitch now, so am I. I mean, <laughs> this isn't Shakespeare, but it's it's a Avril lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and um, I use so many of uh, Catwoman's lines. Just like I think in them. Um, just the other day, I had a leak in my apartment. I came home from work, and I felt so great about myself. And I had this leak, and the the thought that I had was napalm my arm and shove me off a building just when I start feeling good about myself. <laughs> and it's like. What's better than that? Fair enough. I that's, mean, that's a pretty good line. It's broad, and um, the actors are working really, really hard to elevate the material to something 
stranger than it is, and I think it works. Like, mm-hmm. you can't do a line reading of Batman Returns and find, you know, the greatest script ever written. But when all is said and done, it's fun. It's really fun. I loved Catwoman's lines. Um, what does she say? Uh, it's the nice guys you have to watch out for. The sickos never scare me. Yeah. I think she says that as Selena, not yes. as Catwoman. That's true. She says that as Selena Kyle. When she's on a date with Bruce Wayne. He runs into her on the streets of Gotham City the day before the relighting of the tree, and she is staring in a window. And she, it's the weirdest Selena Kyle's looked. Her hair is this huge poof, and her eye makeup is so dark. And she very softly says to herself, to her reflection, why are you doing this? Um, and then Bruce comes up from behind her and he's like, oh, you kind of have a dark side, don't you? Um, <laughs> it's like, duh, look at her styling. Um, isn't it obvious? I, I love that her hair gets bigger as she becomes more wild and like gives into her id. Um, I mean, we did a hair show recently, so it's definitely something that I've seen in other films where it's like, when your hair is flat, you're more reserved and like the easiest way to show. We call that the Meg Ryan rule. Yeah, the woman's <laughs> transformation is like muss up her hair and make it big. Yeah, yeah but she still manages to squeeze it into the uh, the cat. The cow. Yeah, isn't that just crazy? Uh huh. Like especially by the end when it's coming apart and you have these wild pieces of oh. it coming out. It's like what. How did you have any of that in there to begin with? <laughs> I mean, this incarnation of Catwoman, at least in the era in which I grew up, was the iconic Catwoman. The stitched together BDSME German uh, expressionist calico. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That to me is what Catwoman is supposed to look like. Now, I know obviously she's had many incarnations, not just uh, personality and goal-driven, but also sartorially um, oh, yeah. over the years. Oh, yeah. David, can you give us the, the highlights <clears throat> of sort of the Catwoman character, and then we'll, we'll bring it all back to uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman Returns? Yeah. Um, so we'll start at the beginning, and then I'll take us right up to 1992. Catwoman made her debut in Batman Number 1, which was published in May 1940, so 74 years ago. Um, and in this iteration, she was only known as the Cat. And you don't see her really throughout the story. Um, Batman and Robin are on an ocean liner, and an emerald necklace goes missing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the comely legs of the otherwise dowdy Miss Pegs um, <laughs> give the crook away. <clears throat> and it leads up to this really iconic reveal of this kind of Hedy Lamar type, um, but raven-haired, um, standing there in this like sleek dress saying, what's the matter, you've never seen a pretty girl before? The cat is really just a term for cat burglar in this instance. Nevertheless, she's firmly established as a zesty femme fatale. The fact that she was wearing a dress while yeah, fighting criminals dress and, like, is long cape. very weird to me. Well, this was the 40s, <clears throat> right? Yeah. So, No pants for pants. ladies. <laughs> no. Um, this is also when you start seeing her adopt cat characteristics. They start riffing on the idea of nine lives. Um, and that actually comes from Bob Kane, who was once asked about it, um, like, why a cat? And he says, why a cat? Well, a cat has nine lives. 
So I figured that whenever she was caught or wounded, she would survive and live again for another go-round with Batman. And Bob Kane, of course. Bob Kane and an artist called Bill Finger created Batman. And for whatever reason, um, Bob Kane had it worked out with DC Comics that Bob Kane would be credited solely as the creator of Batman in perpetuity. Hmm. Um, but really, when you look at how the character was developed and... Um, who pushed him further into the character that he is today. Many people say that Bill Finger was the real brains behind Batman. So huh. that's, that's a hot controversy that's happening now. DC recently said, like, oh, we're all good with Bill Finger's family. And they came back basically to say, no, we're not. Oh, I, so there's sort of some uh, cat fighting, some in-cat fighting in yeah. the uh, Batman mythos. Which is a shame. But the, so the go round idea and, you know, regenerating lives worked out because um, go round she did. In 46, she moved away from the ghastly furry cat masks and donned what became her first iconic look, which was a purple dress with a green cape and a purple um, cat mask and cowl. And she wore that for many, many years. There were times where she was shown with redder hair, and much to my chagrin, when I learned this, she was also rendered a blonde. Um, <laughs> because my poor mother, when Batman Returns was coming out, every day, every day, she heard her small child <laughs> rail against Catwoman being blonde in this movie. Well, that's not Catwoman. <laughs> and it's not, it's Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, <laughs> And so throughout these stories, you know, you see more of, uh, you know, the claws coming into play, like Catwoman's claws. And she um, picks up the cat o nine tails as her signature weapon. So they really um, are building this caricature of her. Um, <laughs> and during this, period, <laughs> um, during this period, she's also shown out of costume a few times, always with a different alias, notably Elva Barr was a put-upon manicurist. Why is she's Catwoman at night? Like, the disconnect is weird. But so there's no origin story in the way that it's rendered later in the movie. Well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> um, but then in 1950, the uh, comic story, The Secret Life of the Catwoman, changed everything, and it's revealed... So after a bump on the head that Catwoman gets, um, she snaps out of amnesia that she had for years and years and years, and we learn that she's really Selena Kyle, who's an air hostess who had a knock on the head and developed amnesia after a plane crash. And because of that, <laughs> why? We don't really know. She becomes Catwoman. Huh. Ksenia's face is just <clears throat> one of, like, bafflement right now. When do the cats make out with her? We'll get there. <laughs> um... I actually have so many questions about Catwoman. The more that you offer sound explanation as to like how her character has evolved, the more I'm just like, but but this thing that happened in Batman Returns, it just makes no sense. Well, okay, we'll All right. that's we'll, what a we'll, lot of fans said. We'll talk a lot about what applies where, though. Yes. Um, so in 1954, the newly established Comics Code. Um, put out these really strict rules about how women could be portrayed in comics. Huh. So, uh, the, so Selena Kyle ends up reforming and is wiped from the canvas. Too and sexy for comics. Women weren't allowed to be bad. Mm. Um, because in this time, we see Batwoman, the first Batwoman, Kathy Kane, 
as a new kind of romantic interest for Batman. And that's fine because she's good. And then Catwoman really didn't return to the cultural fore until 1966 with the ABC television series, where she was played first by Julie Newmar, and then for the feature film, former Miss America Lee Merriweather, and then for the third season of the show, Eartha Kitt. Um, oh. All three of them, hugely iconic in the part. The costume is so great. Um, sparkling lycra bodysuit with the domino mask. That, for a lot of people, is the iconic Catwoman costume because it was the first time you saw it made flesh. She was a knockout. I mean, what? who wouldn't have a crush on her? <laughs> the 60s series both referred to and then dictated some of the direction that the comics took. And uh, there wasn't... Nobody had an alter ego. None of the villains had an alter ego on the series. It was all just really fun. Like, uh, her criminal prerogatives included looting buried treasure, world domination, and claiming the title of Gotham City's best-dressed woman. Three Um, very worthy causes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Yeah, another amusing thing is, even though you don't have much character development with Catwoman, each of those actresses took a different tack with her. Uh, Julie Newmar was, like, flirty and amoral and just kind of, like, minxy, where she's like, all she wants is Batman to run away with her. And he's like, well, what about Robin? And she's like, Robin? Well, we'll kill him. Like, not even maliciously. It's like, well, yeah, if we have to get him out, okay, fine. Um, Lee Merriweather is uniquely diabolical in her. It's very acidic, um, which might be part of why she's my favorite of the three. And then Eartha Kitt is just Eartha Kitt as Catwoman. <laughs> and it's this... That purr. So purr. perfect. Yeah, she's so great. So with the newfound um, popularity of the character from the TV show, how could they not bring her back to the comics? Later on, she developed this like bizarre um, Pirates of Penzance meets Mod Squad Disco Cat Glamour Puss look that was atrocious. And I think that's the first time they put a tail on her, which is my least favorite thing you can do to Catwoman. I think the tail just doesn't make any sense, especially if you're running from the law. You don't want something dangling from behind that they can grab you by. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's like the whole no capes in uh, The Incredibles Absolutely. It all gets really convoluted through the 70s and 80s. But in 1983, in a Bronze Age story, um, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne, Catwoman's origin was darkened and deepened where she reveals that she invented the amnesia story and she was actually the ex-wife of a rich man who beat her. And to enact revenge, she later like broke into their former home, stole all of the jewelry that he had given to her but kept in the divorce. And finding that she had a taste for burglary and finding her independence, she stayed on as Catwoman. Huh. Um, and that hues a little bit more, more closely to the sort of dark story that we get into mm-hmm. with uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer, Selena Kyle. Yeah, it's the first time that the adoption of the Catwoman identity is linked to like a history of abuse, but we'll be seeing a much more fleshed out version of that later. But also it's funny because like also in this story, um, Catwoman reforms, marries Bruce Wayne, and they give she gives birth to a daughter, um, Helena Wayne, who after... Um, Selena is blackmailed into donning the Catwoman costume again and dies. Um, the daughter becomes the vigilante, the huntress. Um, 
just with how complicated that is, you can understand why in 1985, DC decided these continuities were too much and they needed to streamline. So they had this maxi series called Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they got really meta and played around with the idea that like they kind of had three of each character running around. <laughs> so uh, they just wiped out some of those iterations and streamlined and rewrote some characters' origins. Like, very famously, Batman Year One by Frank Miller. That was the new take on Batman, mm -hmm. the new official take. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Selena Kyle and Catwoman play heavily in that, and then she gets her own kind of Year One spin. Now, um, she's an adult orphan whose cat-obsessed mother killed herself and father drank himself to death. And after spending time in an abusive orphanage, at one time, uh, at one point, she's even bagged up and dropped into a river like a cat. Oh, my God. Um, That's horrifying. <clears throat> yeah. um, she hits the streets and becomes a cat burglar. And after a botched job, she lies low um, as a dominatrix for a pimp called Stan, who later beats and rapes her. Um, and this, paired with seeing a young Batman in action one night, um, inspires her to become Catwoman. And her first order of business is a mission of revenge against Stan. She will kill him. So in the post-crisis days, they instilled Selena's origin and character with inherent marks of a cat. Like, she's a stray, independent woman with an ambiguous moral code. And she walks a fine line between the cruel domestication and feral abandon. <laughs> um, you know, she's like a cat. The only side she's on is her own. And that takes us up to the early 90s and Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman and Batman Returns. It's interesting that in the 80s story, the decision to become Catwoman is a choice for her. And it's not something that she just wakes up one day to discover she is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Batman Returns has some of that ambiguity where, you know, she's pushed out of this window. She dies something mystical happens and then from there she's very autonomous in exacting her revenge um what the heck happens with the cats after she falls out of the window please tell me i am of the mind that it is not supernatural um because not that the physics check out but when she is thrown out the window the physics don't check out <laughs> well no because she hits um she hits a series of awnings going down um that Fair. could break her fall and, um, you know, also related to, like, the cats resuscitating her. Um, right. The cats, so cats swarm her and they appear to give her mouth to mouth. Yeah. They, like, breathe into her and they're, like, nibbling at her, like, almost giving her, like, a blood transfusion, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, that plays into, like, Batman Returns has a lot of fun with the ideas of, with the idea of Catwoman's nine lives. Mm -hmm. That's her first death. And then Batman shoves her off a building into a truck full of kitty litter. There's a lot of falling through glass, which I don't know if that was a conscious going through the glass ceiling mm -hmm. sort of commentary. Right, because when she comes down from that, she falls into a um, greenhouse and then shrieks and shatters the greenhouse. And then everybody makes a lot of hay about, at the end of the film, her final showdown with Max Schreck, the man who murdered her, just goes at her with a gun. And uh, it's like, well, how is she surviving all? And, you know, it's really great. You know, bang, bang, 
four, five, still alive. How many bullets you got in there? Enough to finish me off? Bang, bang, six, seven. All good girls go to heaven. <laughs> I think he's out of bullets. And she leans in with the goddamn taser. She's like, two lives left. I'd like to save one for next Christmas, but in the meantime, how's about a kiss Santa Claus? And then who knows what happens. She like pulls in the live wire and puts the taser between them. Physics still might check, not check out, but it's like she could possibly have survived that because she was insulated by her bodysuit. But if you look at where she's actually being shot by Max Schreck, they are not fatal mm-hmm. blows. He, he's a terrible shot. Terrible I mean, shot. He shoots at Batman and then Batman's just like, meh, I'm fine. And it's like you have this lumbering, this weak, lumbering, uh, frazzled ghoul coming at you very slowly. <laughs> like you should be able to hit her somewhere critical. Yeah, no. Um, but, you know, that's the 1% for you. <laughs> but, yeah, the cat thing, um, Tim Burton actually spoke to it in a terrifically idiotic way. Specifically, I use that term loosely stated, you see the creation with the cats coming around her. It's not supernatural, but we feed into the sort of mythology a little bit of cats and nine lives and all that sort of thing. It's not supernatural, but you don't really know. It's like, oh. Um, I I saw the Halle Berry film. I guess it can't be called a film because it's garbage. Um, But I saw her version of Catwoman like a year or two prior. And so I I was like, that was fresher in my memory than Batman Returns, which I watched this week. And I was surprised how much of the imagery overlaps between the two movies. But in Halle's version... It's so stupid because it's like these CGI cats that surround her and there's some sort of light that goes between one of the cat's mouths and Hallie's. Yeah. They and, make it really explicit. Yeah. It's like, like she eventually finds um, Frances Conroy who mm-hmm. explains to her that well, there have always been cat women and it's this uh, ancient, you know, back to ancient Egypt and you, through history you see that there have cat women and she, and, uh, she googles cats.women mm-hmm. <laughs> which like who doesn't but uh-huh. um, that movie is garbage as we all know um, but the fun fact is the original, what eventually got us there was Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman was received so well by everybody that there was an idea to have a spin-off movie starring Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. And it languished in development hell for more than a decade. And, you know, eventually she left. Tim Burton was like only really interested in it at the beginning. So then we ended up with Catwoman starring Halle Berry as not Selena Kyle, Patience Prince, and I reject talking any more about her <laughs> in the context of Catwoman. Non-canon. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, vehemently was... a non-canon. But my my main point is that like these scenes looked ridiculous in that remake, whereas some of the same types of scenes happened in Batman Returns, like. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman um, breaking into a store and like you know fighting off some guards, but it, it looks so cool. Oh yeah, well, like same the, circumstances, totally different take on it. Tension between like style and substance because exactly. whatever else you want to say about Batman Returns as a film, visually it is 
striking. Gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. But when you put the same kind of set piece into somebody else's hands that isn't so focused on what it's all going to look like in the end, or, you know, with a shoestring budget and everything that can be digitally crafted is digitally crafted, it's a joke. It looks terrible. And it doesn't play. I mean, Tim Burton did an amazing job of Tim Burtonifying the Batman world in a way that I actually find preferable to sort of the gritty, dark realness of, like, say, your Christopher Nolan Batman world, Mm -hmm. Um, which I know many disagree with me, but Tim Burton, his movies are all very tentacly. There's, like, tentacles everywhere and, like, weird, misshapen sort of crookedness in everything he does, and I love that. And it all, you know, the Penguin is the most Burton-y character out of them all. I mean, his nose, the way he's dressed, sort of like um, with the top hat and the monocle, and even just like the padding that they put on uh, Danny DeVito to make him look like, I don't know, like wide in the middle and very like spindly on the ends. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of actual like grime and dirt. Um, uh, oh, yeah. No, it's blood. like why... Like, at the end, it's so gross, but, like, um, if you're, like, biologically human, but just malformed, does getting dumped in the sewer by your parents really do something to you biologically that makes you, like, pus and bleed Well, we don't know what he's eating. (laughs) A lot of of fresh fish out of the sewers. Um, Fair enough. I guess if you're living in the environment with all of uh, Max Schreck's toxic waste, maybe, maybe you mutate. I actually think the penguin is great as the design is. I think making him as grotesque as that is one of the major missteps of the film. I don't have a dissertation on the history of penguin, <laughs> but um, I believe he was introduced in 1945. Oswald Cobblepot has always been his alter ego, but he always had fingers, but right. like the long nose and everything. Um, is the def- I, like? I wonder if the deformity has always been part of his characteristics and just sort of like flipper like hands flipper like hands i mean yeah no i mean he always had fingers he was just um he was a ugly society guy who Mm -hmm. uh, you know took to crime Mm -hmm. and you know it's funny because people will always say that the joker is batman's best foil which in one reading of it yes because it's tension between chaos and control um, Catwoman, I think, is a close second because you have two characters towing the line of morality. Also, sexual tension, which Absolutely. amplifies the story. Yeah, but you know, and but in so much of the sexual tension comes from their moral ambiguity, mm-hmm. where he's on the side of right, but how, or his tactics much different from hers on the side of wrong, and so that's really fascinating. And then you have kind of the Penguin as a foil for Bruce Wayne, where Bruce Wayne was born into kind of the same world that Oswald Cobblepot was. They're both orphans. Um, They both come from rich families. mm. But also traditionally in the comics, um, just like they live on the surface together too. So it's Mm. like a foil that way where they're part of the same world, but on different ends of it because just by virtue of good looks. Bruce Wayne has so much more than Oswald Cobblepot has. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so then the switch to him living in the sewer, i it's always struck me as it works for what the movie is, but there's a different story to tell by not having him as grotesque and um, just making him more of a legitimate human character. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. I mean, the similarities between Catwoman and Batman are really played up in Batman Returns in a way that I actually appreciated. I mean, at the very end when it's Catwoman and Batman and Max Shrek sort of in the sewer at the final We're actually battle. actually at the aquarium at the zoo. Thank you. Um, during the final battle and Bruce Wayne is like imploring Catwoman to team up with him and bring Max Shrek to the police. And he said, you know, he's trying to convince her that they're the same, that they have the same struggles, that they both have, you know, have had things they love taken from them. And, you know, they're working under revenge. There's a duality to both of them. Yes. And then what is her response that is so great? She says, oh, Bruce, it would be so nice if I I could go live in your castle with you and live happily ever after. Forever, just like in a fairy tale. I just couldn't live with myself. So don't pretend this is a happy ending. Selena. What does that mean? I think she's been through too much, and she can't fake her way out of what her life has become. Also, for her, I feel like the ultimate goal is not having this, like, comfy life with a hot guy. Even though pre-Catwoman Selena Kyle seems to value that. I mean, the way that she comes to her apartment and says, Honey, I'm home. Oh, wait, I'm not married. And, you know, the answering machine scene where she's hearing her boyfriend break up with her. That doesn't seem to matter to her anymore. Mm-hmm. No, well, she's a woman obsessed. I think it's interesting that a lot of people who maybe haven't, like delved further into his, the history of Catwoman, call her a feminist, but like especially that scene of her, I can't live with myself, almost makes me think of her as more of an anarchist than anything else. Mm-hmm. Totally, like because feminism isn't a big goal for her. Like you were saying earlier, when she does the tic tac toe on the rapist mugger's face she then after she kicks his ass like also grabs the face of the victim the woman who had just been attacked and like scolds her for waiting for some batman to come her goal isn't to elevate and help women and like gain equality in that sense even though she does bring a lot of gender into her interactions how could you i'm a woman I'm sorry, I... I... As I was saying, I'm a woman and can't be taken for granted. Life's a bitch, now so am I. It's the 90s, it's the early 90s, they give her a lot of puffed up lines that play as feminism. We should note that it was um, originally... uh, Originally the screenplay was written by... I forget his name, but the same person who wrote Heather's. Mm -hmm, And as far as I read, Tim Burton actually toned down a lot of the feminist elements that were in the original script. It was like sort of normalized by some other writers before it was filmed. I am Catwoman, hear me roar. That's not exactly what she's getting at. Um, I mean, I think that's sort of a parody of I am woman, hear me roar, and not... And because it's parody, it's not distinctly trying to be feminist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel Waters, by the way, is the writer yes. of right. Heather's. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, she's... One thing that they really get right about the character is the only side she's on is her own. And so she's not out there, you know, protecting women from uh, all the evils in the world. She's not trying to make a difference for anybody but herself. She's on a revenge quest. 
she would have been fighting Shrek whether he was a woman or a man. He's just like the person who is the like the great symbol of the way she's been put upon through all yeah. these years. And he is the patriarchy. He is the oppression. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, all the, all the other characters in this movie are too. Batman is in the way that he is looked to as the sort of savior of Gotham. And Cobblepot is in the way that he has these um, sort of political goals. Yeah. You know, he runs for mayor at the behest of, Shrek so he can take over the city but that's like she is given the opportunity at various points to team up with each of them and ultimately turns away well mm-hmm. the the only way that she could have really teamed up with the penguin is it seems like if she had sex with him like right. all that's, their interactions that's the final are filled with these well, he really? proposes to her and she laughs in his face and that's when he uh, and then puts eats that bird well, that's earlier. Oh, um, right. No, it's like after they uh, kill the Ice Princess and frame Batman for it. They're standing on a rooftop and they're there with these like champagne coops. Um, which, how did you get those up there? Um, <laughs> I, after everything plays out, and she says to him, "You said you were going to scare the Ice Princess." This is her talking with the penguin. To the penguin. So she was not complicit. She did not plan on murdering the Ice Princess. And he very coldly says, "Like, well, you know, you should have seen her face." She looked pretty scared to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and then he like extends a ring to her on the end of his umbrella, and she's like, you, you know, I wouldn't touch you to scratch you. Um, <laughs> but this is this comes after the interaction previously in his lair, yes, where when she approaches surprises him. him on his bed. Hey, peng- hey, penguin. Hey, Oswald. Yeah, they make him. And make he some, says, "Some bodies here to see you." And he says this is just the pussy I was waiting for or something Mm -hmm. like it's something really gross. Oh, and he gets really hot and bothered by her too. I want to flip back really quickly to the comment you made about how, even if Shrek were a woman, Mm -hmm. um, which happens in the remake. As much as I disdain 2004's Catwoman at Sharon Stone, um, who's in the kind of Christopher Walken role, which is also sort of like a feminist light kind of message where Selena or I'm sorry, Patience, Patience. how dare you? (laughs) Patience um, actually has uh, a cat fight towards the end with Sharon Stone. Also, I don't think, I'm going to crack this open now. Um, I actually don't think that a spinoff movie with Burton's Catwoman and Michelle Pfeiffer would have worked anyway because of how she, like just what her story and her character are. Is there not enough? meet there to well, have her be the lead? So I think the problem is that she becomes Catwoman as a response to the specific thing that happened to her, which then sets her off on her one quest. Um, it's actually, it muddles the character that she does team up with the Penguin and um, well, you know, because Batman kills her another time, so he also ends up in her sight line. It's another revenge quest, but it's muddled um with all the other characters but like once she kills shrek she's done right Um, this movie her storyline in batman returns easily could have existed outside of the penguin storyline happening and i think the only reason they put them together is because how else could you justify having 
three villains in a movie without having them, without sort of inventing ways to make them intersect. Because otherwise, like, there is no reason for them to team up. Well, also, her complicity with the Penguin is bizarre because the Penguin on the other side is in bed with Max Shrek. So it's like there would be plenty of opportunity for them to interact, just not as a team. Frankly, uh, the Penguin being as tied up with Max Shrek as he is should have been enough for him to end up in the crosshairs, too. The friend of my enemy is my enemy. (laughs) Um, But also at the end, you know... Speaking to the possible spinoff, I mean, they do set her up at the end as the last shot mm-hmm. um, in a way that kind of tantalizes that idea. Um, and then you do have Bruce Wayne at the end of the movie. Like, the last line of this movie is so strange to me because it's like Christmas and he's saying, goodwill to all men and dot, dot, dot. women. <laughs> it's like, thanks for throwing that in. 1992. But like, well, and women. And it was a woman. I don't know. It's Ugh. so weird that this is a Christmas movie. Isn't it? Maybe in my perfect world, it only takes place at Christmas so that they could incorporate. Um, so one of the best moments in the movie, which becomes a dramatic device, actually. So the night that they kill the ice princess, Catwoman knocks Batman on his back on a rooftop and she climbs on top of him, feeling very good about herself. And they notice mistletoe hanging above them. And he says, Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. She gets this look on her face and she says, mm. Mm, But a kiss can be even deadlier if you mean it. And then she licks his mouth. And <laughs> the best piece of acting that Michael Keaton does in is... He very, like, tentatively licks his lips afterwards, where he's appalled, but, like, (laughs) nothing is ever going to be as good as that again in his life. Um, And then later we see, you know, a flip of that at the masquerade ball, where, tellingly, Bruce and Selena are the only people not wearing masks, because they do enough of that. Actually, not wearing a mask is their masquerade. Um, And then they notice the mistletoe. And she very softly says, like, oh, you know, a kiss under the mistletoe. You know, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. And then he replies, but a kiss. And then it clicks for both of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says, does this mean we have to start fighting? Which, as a child, I didn't understand that line. And I thought that they were going to start, like, duking it out. <laughs> as opposed to, like, fighting in their relationship. Um, but... So all of that is very fun and iconic, and um, I, I love was, that line. Just the way she says it, like so, like trembling. For the first time, we see her not as the weak secretary in the beginning, not as Catwoman. Like yeah. she, she's in control, but there is like emotion there. Her crying is great, and oh. the, the moment where he he she, after she asks, "Should we start fighting now?" He wipes away her tears mm-hmm. and. Yeah, no, she's she's a great crier. Um, her Michelle Pfeiffer's, which are what I call her very significant <laughs> temple veins when she's playing an emotional scene. I also have Michelle Pfeiffer's. Pfeifferism? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's a terrific scene. And also, like, you kind of see uh, some of the emotion that's happening there, I think, is her making peace with the fact that she's at the end of her quest. And it might be curtains for her, too. Because as the old um, proverb goes, when setting out on a quest for revenge, first dig two graves. Um, 
my question is, has Catwoman always been this sexy in as Michelle Pfeiffer's Michelle, as you say, as Oh yeah. Sorry. I should explain. Um, not really, but, um, I had this really great film professor at Bennington college who, uh, was formerly, um, the head of production at United artists, um, heaven's gate sunk his career. And he wrote a really great book about that. Um, but every time we would start class, he'd be like, okay, gang. So like who watched what over the weekend? And oh, just these turds in my class would be like, oh, well, well Stephen, um, well, so I watched this really obscure, um, great work of cinema. Da, 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 da. It was so irritating. So one time I was like, well, I watched Grease 2. And his jaw went through the floor. He was like, there's a Grease 2. There's a Grease 2. I mean, when was this made? And I was like, well, 1982. Um, and it stars Michelle Pfeiffer and Maxwell Caulfield. Again, his head lifted off of his body. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer is in Greece too. And I was like, <laughs> believe it, better than Heaven's Gate. So, so Michelle Pfeiffer, does she take the sexiness of Catwoman to a new level or is the seduction always part of Catwoman's scheme? Um, in the 40s, like she was always a romantic foil or she always had some kind of romantic design on Batman. Um, and in a 1940s story, which takes place around Christmas time, you know, Batman and Robin are in hot pursuit of Catwoman. They bizarrely put on white versions of their costumes because they're snow Batman, um, <laughs> to like blend in with the snow. Uh, and this is when this is a time that Catwoman was drawn blonde. So it's a whole mess. Um, but so once she's like, once they're at the end of the scheme, um, they're standing in front of a Christmas tree and Batman's like, okay, well, you know, time to take you to jail. And she says, that's mistletoe we're under. Well, don't just stand there. Kiss me. Um, I always think, you know, it's cute because that has to be a deliberate. Batman Returns is deliberately calling back to that. Um, but Batman doesn't play ball. He says, you know, it would never work out between us with me on the outside and you inside a jail cell. She flips out, always hysterical, goes after him, like, why I hate you. And um, just a really great line. Um, why, what sharp claws you have? The prison manicurist will take care of those. And it's like, <laughs> okay. But then before she's Selena Kyle, um, the story where you see her out of costume as Elva Barr also involves a romantic plot where Batman is actually very interested in her and Robin's up in arms. Like, but you know, you can't with Elva. She, we know she's the Catwoman, but you know, also it was the forties and the comics code was about to come in. So sexiness wasn't really a big part of comic books. So even with the romantic subplots, it's not overtly sexy. And I think the first time sex appeal was really a thing with Catwoman was when Julie Newmore put on that suit. I mean, it just fit her like a glove. That's it. I think that's the first time she was really sexy. But mm -hmm. again, like it was a show for, it was a family show <laughs> in the 60s. So even then it's like innocent sexy. Yeah. Um, Not the playful. dangerous, um, sadistic sexy. <clears throat> but at the time that Batman Returns came out, she was not lying low as a dominatrix. In canon, she just was a dominatrix. Whatever else you want to say about it, they certainly gave her sexual agency. In 2001, at the hands of Darwin Cook and Ed Brubaker, 
a really great iteration of the character where this time around they make her an unlikely anti-hero where she's not out to save Gotham City. She's out to protect the denizens of the rough East End where she lives. And they gave her the costume that she's been wearing since, which is kind of an Emma Peel cat suit with a leather hood with cat ears and then the big goggles. It was very sexy, but not in an overt or leering kind of way. Mm -hmm. And then as time has gone on, and you'll see this anywhere, if it's deviant art or if it's, you know, it happens in the actual comics all the time. The new thing is to have her wear the zipper really low. And I guess like editorial mandate at DC these days is Catwoman is sexy. I don't know what their definition of sexy is over there because so much of what they're doing with her is trashy. So Michelle Pfeiffer is kind of the beginning of that hit you over the head with that sexuality. We recently recorded an episode on the craft and we talked a lot about possession. So I wanted to go into that aspect of Batman Returns. Like, does the fact that she seems to be sort of possessed once she hits her head, does that take away from the character that it's almost like the sexuality and the aggression that she takes on as Catwoman it's almost like she doesn't have control over it. There is a scene where she is Selena and she's like questioning herself and trying to hold back and like get back into her usual more passive self. I don't love the psychic break that happens. Um, as much as I like the movie, that is my major problem with Catwoman. Or is she channeling like something that has been inside her the whole time? Is it possession or channeling? Well, you can make the argument either way. Um, you can see the thumbprints of, or you can see like a kind of pentimento happening with drafts of the script in the Selena Kyle scenes in her apartment. She's really poorly written. There are a lot of contradictions there. She's so, so meek. Um, she's a mess. She's a mess, which actually, um, you know, she's not even so much Selena Kyle. She's actually more Elva Barr from the 40s comics where she's just so frazzled. But how she is at work, just so pathetic and so self-effacing. And, you know, honey, I'm home. Oh, I forgot. I'm not married. And what that indicates is... She's just hopeless, and you know no one's going to look at her. Nobody would touch her to scratch her. Um, but then she has the answering machine message from somebody that she's seeing regularly and intimately enough that they're planning on going on a ski trip together, canceling on her. And it's like, well, you know, that doesn't fit in. And she very aggressively and assuredly says to herself, listening to that message, I should have let him win that last racquetball game. It's like, that's not the character that we've been spending time with so far. So you think these are like glimpses of, kind of something that's already there? The argument can be made, but again, this is sloppy, sloppy work because there's so mm-hmm. much contradiction with her. Um, fun fact, something that got dropped from the final film, there was originally going to be, or at some point there was going to be a message on the machine from Gruff Woman saying, Selena, we haven't seen you for a while at the rape prevention class. You know, it's not enough to just master those moves. You have to, eh. 
And uh, it's Whoa. like, so at one point they had like written in. That she'd been raped? I mean, Selena Kyle is a smart and enterprising lady, despite how much of a mess her life is appearing to be and how frazzled she is. The reason Max kills her is because she finds out about his sort of evil plan to take over Gotham. Yeah, it's like she's a really unevenly written character. And so you can look at who she is as Catwoman a couple of different ways. Like that aggression, that athleticism, that vindictive... Or, you know. She's ambitious. Yeah. And she can find out information that she wants to find and understand it. And, you know, so I don't know, maybe it's a comment on ambitious women and what... Be- what befalls them. God, I don't know if I would give it that much credit or discredit. (laughs) Um, It's kind of frustrating that she can't just take more agency and take on the role of Catwoman without getting bonked on the head. Uh, I I guess her boss pushing her out a window is like the thing that pushes her over the edge. Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it just, I, I feel annoyed that it's, she's, basically battling with the character of Catwoman inside her and like trying to suppress it. Mm -hmm. I think something that is compelling about her when she's psychologically written is a wrestling, but more with conscious immorality and what she's doing as opposed to identity. Mm Because I think one of the best things about her is she knows who she is. Mm -hmm. As long as we're in the realm of, vaguely in the realm of uh, Selena's apartment and um, her world... I do have to say I loved so much the scene where she is destroying her apartment and getting rid of everything pink and girly, yet she pulls out her sewing machine and DIYs herself that costume um, using a leather jacket who does not look like it has enough material to make <laughs> well, that Well, it's also outfit. not the right material. It's very, um, <laughs> it's, very it's not a leather jacket. It's like a raincoat. And uh, it's, yeah, it's like patent. Mm. Yeah. But the fact that she uses this, tr- whoa, that's some thunder outside. Fun. Cool. The fact that she uses this traditionally feminine act of, of sewing herself something amid her rage. She rage sews. I just love mm-hmm. it. Oh, and there's that great, um, <laughs> the way that she rage sews where she's running it through and her head just like keeps going back. And she's like, she's a woman possessed for sure right there. Um, <laughs> we would be remiss to not mention one of the stronger visuals in the film, which is when she, shatters the O and the T on her tacky little neon sign to change hello there into hell here. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, well. <laughs> I love it. Sure. No, it's so great. <laughs> um, and that's the background for when the first time you hear the lower register that she uses for Catwoman and you're seeing her, it's a very voyeuristic shot because you're across the rooftops from her and through the window you see hell here, which is the first time that you understand what, um, edit was made to the neon sign and then she comes up from the ground just like running her hands over herself and she says I don't know about you Miss Kitty but I feel so much yummier and it's like it's, it's great I mean it's just a great sequence the DIY I don't know how to add to that but it's a really great point <laughs> thank you a point that I haven't made yet is um Batman returns and like the whole insanity thing is a little irritating because it's the only time it's the only major time that Catwoman is portrayed as being mentally 
unhinged. She is usually... I mean, she's remarkable because so many of Batman's rogues are insane, and they all end up in Arkham Asylum because they're nuts. Catwoman goes to Blackgate. She goes to prison because she knows what she's doing. Um, the Penguin is the other character that is sane. Yes. Um, and he, a little more so than her in Batman Returns, but there's, I mean, he could probably beg an insanity plea. Like, you know. So it's like, why does the main time there's this female villain in the Batman franchise, a film, uh, have to be insane to be bad? Right. Yeah, it's, and they, again, they do it with Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin. Which will be discussed um, in the third incarnation of this pod crawl. Right. It's just like, can't she just be an eco-terrorist? Because women don't do that? I don't know. Yeah, but also yeah. Poison Ivy is typically portrayed as being insane, so that's fine. But why does she have to be made insane? Sure. Um, and she starts off quite mousy. Mousy, also. too. Yeah, that's yeah. the other thing where it's like... Yeah, it, it's a lazy reiteration of the switch between meek woman who, uh, after an attempt on her life, comes back as this, like, rippling id monster of sexuality. It's a good girl battling with the bad inside her, and, like, the only way that can happen is if she loses her mind. Yeah, cheap, right? I feel like we're in Gotham right now, and it is reckoning. <laughs> <laughs> she is better when she's not insane. She is trying to do it for herself, and this is what she has to do. Hell I think yeah. that's more, that's more compelling. Like it's really fun to see Michelle vamping around like a frazzled ghoul. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it exists in that movie. And like again, I don't think a spinoff would have actually worked. Well, I think the raging storm outside the studio apartment uh, is telling us that while we will continue to record, it also wants to be heard. So uh, (laughs) I guess we will wrap up the discussion of Batman Returns here. There's much more we could say. I hope we do another Batman movie or another superhero movie on this podcast. Um, I love delving into these narrative histories that span media and decade. I would love to listen to that, but don't invite me because I'm not a total dork. So I really only know Catwoman. (laughs) You'll have to find some other loser. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) As he puts on his sunglasses and runs out the door. Can I smoke in here? (laughs) David Archer, everybody. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This was a real kick. And please tune in to uh, the rest of this pod crawl a week from today, the day that this is released, June 5th. Um, you will hear Read It and Weep discuss Batman Forever. Um, that's on June 12th. A week later, June 19th, here proudly resents take on Batman and Robin and um, Poison Ivy and all the other <laughs> If you like what you've heard, if you enjoy listening to Bonnie and Maude, please leave us a review on iTunes and rate us. It actually helps people who would be interested in this kind of thing find us. So we would really appreciate that. And if you have any other feedback, um, bonnieandmaude at gmail.com. And we love hearing your voices. Please call us at 530 628 
1-800-273-3379. Again, you can leave us your thoughts about episodes, suggestions for films, or tell us about your movie viewing experiences. Call us at 530-MOD-79. Thanks. And it is a it is a voicemail box, so we won't pick up an answer and ask you personal questions about yourself. Thanks again for listening. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yorosh. What a fun time. <laughs>